This is the Unique Smiles Podcast, a podcast featuring stories of people with facial paralysis and the challenges they've faced, with your host, Brian April. Hey everybody, it's Brian April here with the Unique Smiles Podcast. I want to send a a quick shout out to our sponsors today at Facial Paralysis and Bell's Palsy Foundation. They're a nonprofit organization uh, who are dedicated to raising awareness of facial paralysis concerns within the medical community and society at large. If you need support, check them out at facialparalysisfoundation.org. That's www.facialparalysisfoundation.org. And while we're at it, I'd send one more shout out to my good friends at Rise Physical Therapy. Rise Physical Therapy has multiple locations throughout San Diego and is the only clinic that treats patients one-on-one with a provider for the whole session. Their individualized approach to therapy helps patients of all ages and diagnoses. They also have access to other facilities and wellness modalities like whole body electric cryotherapy that no other facility has. So check them out, risephysicaltherapy.com, www.rise, physicaltherapy.com. But let's continue our conversation with the Wax and her research on the facial paralysis and the social and professional impact of facial paralysis. And Faye, we talked a little bit about the study previously. Just kind of go over again real briefly how you get into the study and what are, you know, what are some of the things that you started to find with it? So basically, just to give people a little overview of what I did, is I interviewed over 100 people with facial paralysis, mostly acquired, but some people with congenital facial paralysis. I also talked to physical therapists, occupational therapists, and some surgeons and doctors, and I talked to some parents, grandparents, siblings, and partners, uh, just to get a little bit of context on what people were going through. It was what we call a snowball sample, meaning that um, there is no master list out there anywhere of people with facial paralysis. And even um, if there were, there's probably HIPAA rules that would prevent doctors from giving that list out anyway to random people. So I constructed the list by going to different organizations that treat the different kinds of conditions that are likely to get facial paralysis. I went to, you know, the Acoustic Neuroma Foundation, Bell's Palsy, the Charles Bell Society, Ramsey Hunt um, support groups, things like that, and just sort of asked anyone who was willing to talk to me. To talk to me, the interviews are usually about one to three hours, depending on the person. I think a few were maybe a little bit shorter. Some people are rather taciturn and some people are very loquacious, so a few were very long, um, but the average one was, I think, something like 80, 83 minutes. I, I've calculated an average at some point. And, and so based on that, uh, the interviews have all been transcribed, and I've analyzed most of them, still doing a little analysis, and now I'm taking a look at what the data is showing me. So your original question is, what am I finding, which is very, very interesting. And so one of the things, okay, so for people with acquired facial paralysis, one of the things we really see is this sort of having to transition from seeing yourself as, you know, we're all normal people or we're all not normal either way. But to see yourself as maybe a healthy person to seeing yourself as maybe a person who has a challenge. Some people re-articulated this as a disability. Some people uh, preferred not to see it as a disability. That's 
um, going to be a discussion in one of the chapters in depth as to who sees it as a disability and what it means to see it as a disability versus to see it as, you know, something else, uh, some other kind of challenge. Um, a lot of people called it a social disability or a communication disability as opposed to just the standard, uh, just using the blanket term disability. But it's sort of that reshaping of identity for people with acquired facial paralysis of who am I now? How am I different? Am I the same person? Do I want to be the same person? How has this impacted me? How has it affected me? And, And there's really a big shift in identity and people really have to go through this identity adjustment process for the acquired people. For the congenital people, right, they live with this their whole life. And for them, embracing the disability identity was much more common like it, because it gave you a larger community early on to connect with uh, of people who faced challenges uh, similar to you as you grew up versus, you know, the people with acquired who sort of sort of struggle with this idea of moving from one category into another category that is, you know, to be frank, I mean, our society is not kind to people with disabilities. Or when we are kind to people with disabilities, it's in a very paternalistic way that takes away the agency of the person viewed as disabled. So I, it's so that sort of shift for people was um, extremely difficult to come to terms with. That totally makes sense. Yeah, and, but what was also interesting for me is, as you know, one of the things I just happened to teach is I teach a lot of classes on um, otherness and difference. So I teach things like uh, gender and sexuality. I teach uh, race relations. Um, I've you know things like that. And what was fascinating to me was how similar the language of otherness is, regardless of what other category you're in, and how similar the there's a of course, everyone, there's a unique history to every category of identity. There's a unique uh, history and struggle to, um, you know, race versus sexuality versus gender, right? All of those have very unique histories, very unique struggles. Um, but what the Black feminist scholars give us with intersectionality is that all of us have these over, have these identities that are made up of all these different things, right? So I'm a, I'm a white, cisgendered, a uh, woman now with something that might be viewed as a visible disability, right? And so I'm always having to go through the world with these things. And just like, you know, other, you know, maybe an African-American uh, woman has a, a different set of challenges. But as women, there's some overlap. Mm-hmm. Or as a person with a disability, there's some overlap. And what was so interesting to me was how whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, there's certain areas or facets of identity or ways people look at identity or struggles about identity that were very similar. So sort of um, a lot of people talked about passing versus not passing. Could I pass as someone without facial paralysis versus or, oh, you're someone who can pass. You're not really a facial paralysis person versus this other person who was very noticeable. They could never, quote unquote, pass. And I was like, wow. I've read a lot of literature on race. It sort of talks about the same stuff of this in-community, out-community, who's really affected, who could pass, right? And so you see all these really interesting parallels, and then you sort of start to step back and take this sort of broader look at how does just otherness or being viewed as the other impact people's lives, and what are things we can do um, 
to be more inclusive in lots of different ways that could make it just easier for people who have a difference or a challenge that they're facing. That's really uh, interesting that you brought that up. That's one of the things that I sometimes get from a personal level, like when I'll be at a, a group or whatever, someone will look at me and go, oh, I don't, you know, I don't see it at all. You can totally, you're, you're like, you're lucky. You, you know, I don't see it on you at all. And I'm like, well, I see it clear as day, number one. And number two, it affects me uh, with my job, with being able to emote and manipulate my face the way I need to, to portray certain things. So it, it's weird. There, there were some times that I felt kind of, yeah, not included in the group because, People are like, oh, no, it's almost like you didn't even need to be here. So that was really, really eye-opening and very interesting for me. It's funny to see that that kind of right. came through. Yeah, oh, no, that came through. And it, it was fascinating all to hear to hear from a, a large group of people because you heard it all the way through. You heard it from the people who were like, they make me feel excluded because they keep telling me I can pass. And you heard it from the people who were very angry that they couldn't pass mm. and you know and you know and the reality is is certainly um i would imagine th that some people were also treated very badly and so people who were treated badly certainly carried more anger than others with them in general so i also really saw very clearly safety in one's home so people who came i really wanted to just go hug some people's parents because you would see people who are very affected and just had these great attitudes. And when you would sort of talk to them, what would really come through was the kind of home they grew up in, the kind of support they got from their families, the kind of support they got from their partners. And you really saw how how much that matters to making a confident, whole, complete person. And by the same token, you saw people who people who came from homes where they felt unsafe, where there was significant substance abuse or state or violence issues, where they were made to feel not valued, um, where there was verbal abuse. Those people did not cope as well as a group. Hmm. And they, for obvious reasons, they've been given fewer coping skills to start off with. They've been given fewer... Um, uh, my child is five. What do they call it? It is TK. A bucket fill. Their buckets aren't full. So they said, you know, when you give someone emotional support, you're filling up their bucket. And when someone has a full bucket, you can take a little bit out of that bucket and they're still going to be okay. But if someone never got their bucket filled, you take a little bit out of that bucket and they've got nothing left to sustain themselves. There was one person in particular who was just this amazing person. And um, I actually interviewed this person more than once and I interviewed some of their family members and it was, this was a true, a person with just this amazing soul. Uh, and you really saw it where they had come out of a very unsafe environment and even, and this person knew, you know, how this was impacting them. But now it was like, you really saw how every good thing in this person's life was actually a bit of a challenge for them because not only of the facial paralysis, but because of the, the fear and the violence of early childhood. So it's like we could be doing a lot better for everyone. Absolutely. One of the things that I was curious was, did you find that there were a lot of men that were forthcoming? or because... No. <laughs> men do not want to talk about it. Men were the... It was, what I thought was fascinating was men don't come to the support groups nearly as often. They don't go on the support sites nearly as often. To the point that I began to wonder if facial paralysis happened to women significantly more than it happens to men, and it turns out it doesn't. 
but the men are much less willing to talk about it. However, in my in my field, that's sort of one of the jokes is that any qualitative study where you're trying to talk to people, it is always harder to get men. Hmm. Uh, so I've, I've even done studies on, on sports, and it's even harder to get men talking about <laughs> sports um, than it is to get women talking about their, their own experiences with sports, as crazy as that sounds. And so definitely, like, and what I thought, at first, what a lot of people people speculated to me was like, oh, well, maybe these men just aren't as affected by it. But I did talk to, in the end, get to talk to a fair number of men, and that was not the case. The men said the exact same things the women did, you know, to some degree, but it was harder for them to talk about it. Was and that... I think that, again, that's the coping skills. I think women learn, women are taught. We definitely give women more skills to, to seek help, to talk, to um, understand the value of support in those sorts of situations and the value of talking about a problem um, in terms of solving it. Well, I wonder if going forward, the newer generations and how uh, more open and more sensitive everyone is, if that's going to change, because growing up, for me, you know, boys don't cry, you're going to be a tough man, and you have all those stereotypical societal norms that are, are shoved in your face, and it's like, you don't talk about this, you don't express your feelings, you don't do any of this. So I wonder if eventually that's going to kind of uh, turn around. Yeah, I hope so. I really do. It would be, because it actually, um, and one of the things we know is, is that particular thing, that not talking, not sharing your feelings, not seeking support is actually devastating for men's long-term mental health. Uh, was there anything that was maybe more surprising uh, about men, or was it just the fact that uh, the men had pretty much the same issues and, and sort of um, comments as the, the women? Well, I thought what was more interesting was which men were, were the most willing to talk. Was uh, What sort of stood out to me was that um, men in entertainment, such as yourself, were more willing to talk. And I think maybe because it had this direct impact on your career and therefore you had to confront it mm -hmm. um, in a way that other men didn't, didn't have to confront it. So I, so I noticed that within my sample of men, I, I very much oversampled men who are, were performers or entertainers or or in their job stood up in front of people, maybe even if they were, say, an engineer, if a major part of their job was giving the presentations, they were far more likely to end up wanting to talk about what happened. Also, educators, uh, and again, it's that standing up in front of people. I got, I got a huge number of male educators among the men who talked to me were willing to talk to me, um, whereas uh, men in more blue-collar um, occupations were sort of the hardest or the most difficult to get into my sample to talk to me. And they actually all, um, when I did, the, one of the few that I was able to reach and get to talk to me, or sometimes I would just kind of go up to people and chat with them at an event um, and get some information from them. They often um, were the ones who suffered um, the most violence. So like the poorer you were, or the lower down sort of the privilege ladder, your occupation was the most likely you were to have encountered maybe physical violence or physical harassment, either on the job or in public. Um, and a few women experienced that as well. But, um, but the working class men often experienced violence as a result of um, being visibly different. One man told me he was standing in line for a movie and someone walked up to him and punched him in the face wow. and said, I don't like the way your face looks. All right, that that, yeah. that that is just a jerk. That's all I'm going to say to that. That is right. not a normal. That is a not a normal reaction for hopefully most men. Full yeah. defending us there. That's unacceptable. 
So with the, the jobs, you found different uh, types of jobs. What about, what are some of the things that people dealt with when trying to either look for or dealing with their jobs, whether it was a new job or their, their current job? Well, you know, it, it was a big challenge for people. I think, again, it's, if your job was supportive to start off with, for a lot of people sort of reported it, it actually having a sort of positive impact in that people were really kind to them, were really compassionate, it made them like their coworkers more because they showed this kindness toward them. Um, but for other, uh, but the people who experienced discrimination, it was extremely obvious. It was extremely problematic. Um, but you also saw the difficulty in, let's say, if you wanted to prosecute, because it's also often, you know, very subtle things. So it might simply all of a sudden, so a lot of people reported all of a sudden simply being excluded from the types of projects that they had generally been working on before. A lot of people saw maybe a decrease in their hours or their assigned tasks and, you know, sort of being phased out quietly. If they were an independent contractor, they saw, again, they saw themselves really cut back. Uh, a couple, one of the, I remember one of the women I spoke to really stuck in that she worked in home health care. And so she was actually working with disabled people. And she said she had a number, and she said she would always tell people up front, I have facial paralysis. If you're having trouble understanding me, just let me know and I'll try to find another way to to let you say this to you. Um, and she said she was reported for being drunk on the job because of her quote-unquote slurred speech. She was reported for being unfriendly because she wouldn't smile. And she's like, I opened with telling them I couldn't smile and they still reported me for being unfriendly. And then she got reported for um, being rude because she talked on one side of her mouth instead of in the middle. Right. So things like that kept happening to her. And so and she in her case, her employer understood the situation and was sympathetic and um, worked with her to get her to clients who understood her situation and would work with her. But it was also just sort of one of those very demoralized, very demoralizing to be getting complaints about your work that aren't really about your work that are about you know, how you look. Right. And so that happened to a lot of people talked about, you know, it was interesting how actually compassionate the people with facial paralysis were because a lot of people with facial paralysis were like, oh, I get it. When people look at me now, they think I'm making a mean face at them and I'm not. So I'm making so many of them went, oh, well, I'm making them uncomfortable. So I have to compensate, which was a really interesting um, way of dealing with it. So a lot of people just developed compensatory strategies Many a lot of people develop like verbal strategies, but again, these were the people sort of like when you're this is for people who are higher up who, who are in the power position or in a position to do some negotiation with their job, right? Then you can sort of like uh, a lot of people talked about I you started using a lot more verbals, or I started one woman talked about like she realized that she'd walk around at work and even walk around the neighborhood. She, she's like, I used to just smile at people, and she's like, all of a sudden, people weren't smiling back at me, or people were giving me weird looks, and then. She was an engineer, so she had some friends watch. And they were like, oh, when you smile now, it looks like a grimace. And so she went, oh, okay, but this was an engineer. So she was instrumental about it. She didn't care. It was interesting. She didn't care that her smile didn't look right. She cared that she wasn't getting the right social response. So she was like, oh, okay, well, I'll just do a friendly wave instead. So she developed, like, a, a really friendly wave. And so she would walk around work. And then she's like, now I walk around work. And instead of, like, smiling at my team, I give them my friendly wave. And, or I give them, like, a little salute. And, and like, so she just sort of so I developed another way to let people know I was saying hi and being friendly that didn't involve a smile. 
And, you know, and sort of, so for me, like, like even for me myself, like I can, I can do the balls of the cheek smile really well. So I do the, the cheek ball smile mm-hmm. where it's like clear I'm giving you a positive facial expression, but I'm not doing the full smile because that's where the facial paralysis becomes much more noticeable and I get a, a strange reaction. I know one of the things that the, you sometimes will do some online seminars about people searching for jobs and, and interviews and things like that. Were there any tips and tricks that you Absolutely. may have come across? Absolutely. I think the number, okay, so the number one thing is, is confronted head on. Okay, so first of all, before you go on a job interview, practice. Practice does not mean obsessing neurotically about what you're going to wear or how badly it's going to go. Practice means going online and looking up commonly asked job interview questions and having someone ask you those questions and practice your answers. Research where you're going to be getting your job. Look at what they do. Find out what they're about. And most importantly, what I tell people is people want to hide the facial paralysis. I say do the opposite. You're probably going to get asked a question like, what's a challenge you've overcome? What's something in your work that's hard for you? You're going to ask something about challenges. You have the world's best answer to that question. You do. Wow. Here's how I overcame facial paralysis. Let's say I were to go work at another university, go interview for another job at another university. If they were to say to me, what's the biggest challenge you'd overcome? I could, well, as someone who lectures, who lectures for a living and constantly has to see, dealing with visible facial paralysis, right? That's a great answer to that question. Absolutely. And you can come up with lots of ways you dealt with it that make you look resilient, hardworking, intelligent. You're also now memorable. So do you want to be the person that seemed a little weird and a little awkward and never smiled? Or do you want to be that person they interviewed who overcame that amazing challenge? You've got to think about that impression you're making, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you're, you're right. You can't smile. You're right. You can't give them that big, you can't give them that big million dollar smile. That is absolutely true. You can't use that as your first impression. So what are you going to do instead? Are you going to give put yourself at a disadvantage right at the beginning, or are you going to turn your disadvantage into an advantage? And this is one that in a lot of jobs, you can turn it into an advantage. And they're not going because, to because like I said, come right out and yeah. ask about it because I don't believe they, they can by law. They're not going to be like something it's wrong. It's illegal. With yeah. Yeah, it's illegal. So find a good spot to uh, to bring it up and be open and honest about it. Yeah, I mean, no one has, and and you know what? If they still judge you negatively for it, then that was probably not the right job for you, and that is an office that you will never feel comfortable in. Is that the job you want? Absolutely not. And you know, I think, but I think one of the biggest things about, and this is unique to synkinesis, if you just have you just have facial paralysis, if you um, have facial paralysis without synkinesis. Um, this is probably, I've never heard of this impacting people. Um, I won't say it doesn't because maybe there is someone who it still impacts. But specifically for people with synkinesis, the miswiring disrupts um, communication and identity in these incredibly profound ways that are incredibly hard for people to deal with that haven't been acknowledged or legitimated yet, either in the medical or the psychological or the social science literature. I know Jackie Deals has done some really amazing work on it. And um, there's a few other people who've looked at it a little bit, but that was for the people with synkinesis, the fundamentally most profound problem or challenge 
was this sort of deeper miswiring so that your brain is constantly getting tricked with wrong triggers. So like when you're communicating with someone and they look sad, your face will automatically sort of drop into a sad, commiserating expression with them. Or when they, they are telling you a story and they're animated and they're excited, you'll automatically respond with a smile or a more animated expression. And most of how we communicate is nonverbal uh, in terms of like emotional state and all of that. Well, when you have synkinesis, when their face drops into sad or their face goes to happy and you start trying to mimic them, the wrong thing happens. And so you start feeling the wrong emotion. And that's like this. And the way I sort of described it to someone is that when I'm involved in communication and you're just feeling emotion, sometimes it feels like my, like my brain is literally getting slapped with the wrong emotion that I then have to sort through and go, nope, that's just the synchronesis, disregard, disregard, disregard. And they're all just enjoying the moment. And it's like, because a lot of people just, and what's interesting is a lot of people just assume that they, it's just that they got a reminder of their facial paralysis and that quote unquote made them sad. But it's actually much more profound than that. It's that you're, it's that a, a something that got hardwired. And again, this is only for people with acquired. This is only for people with synkinesis. When you were very, very little, nonverbal facial communication in your culture got hardwired in, you know, probably somewhere between six months and three years. And, and now every single time you make a facial expression, the wrong thing is happening. It really is an emotional flap. Hmm. And what everyone says, yourself included, was that it's very disconcerting. And so I start trying to feel less. Yep. <laughs> yeah that's kind of the definition of depression yeah it, it right? was it was definitely a thing of i tried not to get too high emotionally or, or too low emotionally and i just tried to like not express if i was truly happy so maybe i wouldn't laugh as much or maybe i wouldn't try to smile as much because i just didn't want all of that to to pull and feel worse and yeah you do you just kind of shut yourself down into this little uh, depressing box. <laughs> yeah. And what people assume is it's, oh, I just don't want the reminder. I just don't want the pull. Mm -hmm. But as I got into it deeper and I read more of the literature and I talked to people more and I lived it, it became really clear to me that it's not just a reminder. If it were just a reminder, we could get over it and we would live with it. It's that slap of the wrong emotion. It's like that's, it's like literally, it's like I was trying to describe it. It's like literally like you're, let's say you're trying to laugh and be happy. And in the middle of that, something in your brain screams, sad, 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 sad. I'm, I'm nodding my head in approval. I know you can't see me, but yeah. I'm absolutely, yeah. it's a thousand percent true. You're, you're, yeah, and you go to laugh and then you feel that pull and you just immediately like, oh, and like, I totally understand it. So, yeah. It's like, it's like, so what do they do? Everybody does, everyone does it. So I don't want to smile. I don't want to laugh. I want to shut down. Mm -hmm. Smiling. Part of what, what's happened though is when our, part of experiencing emotion is the physical experience of it, right? There's no experience. Human beings are physical and corporeal. There is no experience of emotion without the physical. So what you're effectively doing is, is, what you're effectively experiencing is this disruption to your ability to experience self and normal emotion. That's devastating. 
Yes, it is. <laughs> it definitely was, especially I was really, really devastated for the first four years or so. And then I've, I've tried to, in recent years, just kind of let it go and be what it is. But there's there's definitely still times when I, I definitely cut back and, and try not to to do certain things. If something is important oh, yeah. or if I'm around people who know me, uh, I, I can kind of just, you know, be myself. But if it's I'm at an important thing or I'm meeting somebody um, for the first time, then you, you definitely become more guarded with that. Oh, yeah. And it's and it's also just an unpleasant thing to experience that every time you laugh uncontrollably, your brain is screaming these long messages in the back of your head. Like. There, there aren't, how did I put it to someone? I said, there aren't, if you have synchronesis, you never have a moment of pure joy again. Well, one of the things, never. like for me personally, and I'll, I'll, I'll just get a little personal, is every time I would try to kiss my wife, you know, uh, my lips would, you know, mm -hmm. go to pucker to, to kiss my wife, and then all of a sudden there goes my eye, and it just, it was brutal, you know? And so you go, yeah. well, this is, you know going to affect uh you know this is my wife that i love and every time i do that it, it's i'm getting this negative you know like you said getting slapped with this negative emotion and uh yeah I, and you're just like oh. yeah and i'm actually curious that that ties into what i want to talk to next is is kind of how how does this affect um a lot of relationships or what were some of the the keys that you came in whether you were previously in a relationship or looking for a relationship like was there any things of interest that, that came up for uh, people? Just the level of anxiety it provokes for people. So people who are already in a good relationship tended to, to make it. Mm -hmm. right? so people whose relationship was solid to start off with tended to survive. People whose relationships were shaky to start off with, this, this tended to, that's, that's it, it's done. They didn't survive. And people who weren't in a relationship, it was extremely hard. It was much harder for them to, to go out and date afterwards, significantly more difficult. For all of the, um, the normal reasons, it's harder to go out and date when you're um, getting older anyway. But then with the facial paralysis, and then on top of that with getting those mixed emotional cues, what a lot of people said is it, it's just so much more work because I'm working so hard to make this impression and I'm having to work to control these weird emotional responses that are always wrong in my head. It's just, you know, not fun and pleasant anymore. I'll tell you a super positive um, story on the other side is a couple of people it actually worked out really well for. And the people is one person, I think put it this way and I thought this was so beautiful because this person actually came in and we did the interview and like they were basically like, I lost my job. I had to declare bankruptcy. I like everything fell apart in my life. And I finally was like, I was like, but you're so happy. And they were like, I fell in love. And I was like, well, what happened? And they were like, you know, and this was a, you know, a kind of a party boy. And he was like, I'm, you know, he's like, a part, I was a party boy. I'd go to all the clubs. And I, w I figured once I got the, you know, I was really good looking. And he's like, once I got the facial paralysis, I figured my party boy days are done. You know, nobody's good. I'll just like hang out and talk to people. And he's like, so I, I was, I was just hanging out, talking to people. And basically what ended up happening was, there was an extremely attractive person there who was getting hit on by everybody who was getting really sick of getting hit on. And here was this guy who just wanted to talk to him and get to know him and was just friendly. And he was like, he was like, I ended up getting married to the most handsome man in the place. He's like, he's like, let me show you a picture of my husband. <laughs> he, he was, his husband was drop dead 
gorgeous. And he was like, and he, and he said, what my husband told me was that I was the only person who talked to him about what kind of, about his life, about what kind of person he was. He's like, he's like, I said, I was the first person who really tried to get to know him and wasn't just hitting on him. And he's like, so facial paralysis worked for me. <laughs> it made me think I shouldn't just be hitting on people, but should talk to them. <laughs> That's that's great. One. I thought that was a great story. Yeah, yeah, like cause, and yeah, and and a, a one person actually came to one of our uh, dating workshops, and then that night she went out and met someone, and she said, you know, I don't know if it'll work out, but they they dated for several months and had a great time. Wow. Yeah, and some of the people think, we've uh, talked to on the the podcast have all either gone on and met people and dated and married, and it's it's been pretty interesting. Some of them had it, you know, pretty I, yeah. early on. Well, I think the best advice comment that someone um, said, and I actually sort of said a variation of this myself. What I used to say is, look, if you live long enough, the looks are going to go. So you better find something else to like about yourself and your partner. And we you know what, what one of the older people with facial paralysis said is what one of, when she kept saying, oh, I don't know if I can date with facial paralysis. As her friend pulled her aside and was like, she's like, look, we're in our 50s. <laughs> All of us have something wrong with us at this point. And then she's like, she's like, I thought about it. That's funny. Was there any issues as far as sex and intimacy, or did those themes come up at all? Or oh yeah, absolutely. Now, and I teach I teach sexuality, so I'm actually um, far more willing to talk about sex than your average person. Or I've, I've certainly at this point become completely comfortable. It's like if you can stand up in a room of a hundred undergraduates and just talk in detail about sexuality, talk about sexuality. It was interesting. What I found was that um, people who were sort of uncomfortable with sex before were kind of uncomfortable with sex afterwards. Uh, people who were comfortable with sex before were just figured out a way to make it work. So, like, one of the big things that people bring up is um, kissing and, of course, oral sex were the two big issues that people would bring up. And what most people sort of found was eventually they figured out how to make it work with both. They either healed to the point that they could do both again, or they figured out how to make it work. And for a couple of people who couldn't figure out how to make the oral sex work really well, again, they were just like, whatever, I've got other parts, I've got hands. If they were, if they were comfortable with it, they were just like, yeah, we figured out ways to make things work. Right. And you know what, I actually wish that people would talk about that a little bit more because it definitely was something that really bothered people when people first got facial paralysis. Well, for people who were just getting facial paralysis, people who are new to it, that actually was one of their biggest concerns is will I be sexually functional um, again? And everybody was. They might have maybe had to change a little bit how they did it, but everybody was sexually functional. Hmm. We'll have to have okay. that in one of the. Uh, we'll have to have that as a, a much more in-depth topic. I think one of these days. That's a, a really. Yeah, I've actually thought about going back and doing a like a study just on sexuality and facial paralysis, just the sexuality part. That would be interesting to hear. So, I guess one of the the last, I think, probably main things I would imagine is the, just the the social uh, impact and the the aspect relating to going around and being around friends and going out socially and how that impacts everything, social social media, all that sort of stuff. What did you come across in your research? Well, it's sort of interesting for the congenital people. You often who often had to deal with you know from birth this sort of lifetime of more difficult interaction. It was interesting because a lot of they they tended to either just really figure out how to make their way and just really be out there and be comfortable with who they are and 
a couple of people sort of had variations of, well, you know what, it's a really great screener. If they can't deal with my facial paralysis, then they're not the right person for me to be around. Uh, much more so than, and, but for people with acquired facial paralysis, and again, specifically synkinesis, one of the real tragedies, again, of synkinesis is specifically the way the muscles tighten kind of mimics anxiety. So even people who had anxiety before, their anxiety got worse. And part of why their anxiety got worse was, of course, you now have this additional thing that you're dealing with. But part of why their anxiety got worse is that simply the muscles that are tight are the muscles that tighten when you feel anxious. Hmm. Um, and I got a really great reminder of this recently where, you know, in gearing up for this surgery, I stopped my Botox about six months ago, and it's now um, all worn off. And sort of as it was wearing off, it was sort of, it was really, really funny. I was just, I, and I, I was, um, I was like, oh, let's go for a jog and I'll think about things. And that's how I think about things. And I was jogging along and I was like, there's something really wrong with me. I've been feeling like really down and anxious for like the last two weeks. And like, I'm like, I'm like, what is wrong with me? And like, am I developing depression? I've never been depressed before. I'm like, what is going on? What is wrong with me? And then like, I got halfway up the hill and I was like, what's this chapter you're working on about? I was like, how facial paralysis mimics anxiety and depression. I was like, what did you, what wore off two weeks ago, right when you started feeling this way? Your Botox. And I was like, right. That's funny. So here you are. You have something that's visible. That's, anyone who knows that there's something weird and visible about them or whatever it is, that's going to make them feel a little more anxious. And you have synkinesis, which is mimicking anxiety. And so as you're going into the situation, knowing that you look a little strange, knowing that you have and having the synkinesis, those things are now feeding off each other and those muscles are getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And now meeting new people is something that people with synkinesis, every, almost every person, I'll have to go back and check it, definitely over 90% of the people with synkinesis all said meeting new people is harder for me now. I feel more anxious. And, I, and for you as a performer, right, mm -hmm. you've got to stand up with new people all the time. Yep, every, every show. And I, I, um, it's funny, I've actually found a different way of bringing up the topic of facial paralysis uh, I used to tie it in right after viral meningitis bit. And then I said, you know, I got this disease called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome and blah, blah, blah. And it just like totally brought everybody down and like in. It brought everybody in and they would sometimes almost feel bad for me. And then recently I decided to change it and I go, well, some of you have probably noticed right now that I have facial paralysis and I got it as a result of blah, blah, blah. And I'm okay. And that totally changed the reaction of the crowd of how, how hard they could laugh and what their, there was no more of that like, ah feeling. And it just became more of a matter of fact. And it was just, I was very, it made it seem like I was much more comfortable with it and it was no big deal. And so that was really interesting to me from a psychological perspective as a comedian that just making that slight change uh, made all the difference. So that's yeah, how, that's interesting. Yeah, that's how I like to uh, come out and uh, approach it now, and it, it seems to be much more effective in keeping things light and keeping the crowd up enough that they they will laugh at the material. I mean, they laugh at it anyway because it's funny, but it it's not as much work for me to get them to that point. Yeah, and you want less work to get to the laughter. <laughs> yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You don't want it to be going, 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 and then have a dip in the middle, and then have to like lift them out of the hole again. So. 
Yeah, but it's just, but for, you know, for your average person, it just, it really cuts down on their, their um, enjoyment of socializing with new people. And it was interesting when you sort of point out to them that it's not just that they felt nervous, but it's just that synchronesis is uncomfortable. It's, it almost made them, it, like, it made them feel better, right? It's, it was sort of like, well, it, 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 there's, it, people, we're really interesting. People are, we're really quick to, to blame ourselves, right? And so then they would start blaming themselves for not being able to get over their anxiety and have a better time dealing with people. It was like this really interesting cycle of blame. And it's like, no, you're actually experiencing this weird communicative problem that's happening because of your synkinesis. And that was, it was interesting how that was sort of liberating for them. Like, oh, so I, I haven't become an angry, anxious, depressed person. <laughs> And as you point out, is how um, the support groups, like a lot of people also actually said what you said about the support, the initial finding of the support groups is that some of the support groups are kind of a little depressing for people. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's, I think that's another thing we really need to get out that message out to people is the support groups, you know, we need to be able to complain about the bad side, but then we also sort of need to bring it around to this, like, yeah, it's tough. But, well, I mean, it's like that with you're, almost you're making it. anything, you know, whether it's if you had back issues or whatever and you're going to back form, there's very few people like, oh, no, things are much better now. Because once you're feeling better, you don't necessarily need that support. So you don't necessarily go back. And it's always just uh, I don't want to say always, but there's a lot of people that are just like, oh, this is miserable. And this is what happened to me. And I'm so depressed. And it, it, so it's sometimes hard to find positivity in some of the places where you're going for support. But the, uh, the, right. the in-person support groups have been amazing, especially with the, the groups that we have in Southern California. And actually, a few of the Facebook support groups have been really, really positive, And there's a lot of people that stay around and are very, very encouraging. So I, I think it's starting to turn around uh, a bit more now as more people are starting to become aware of it. Like as we're getting some people who are are also like I'm starting to see more of the online groups that where people are are sort of starting to create these more positive groups and I think that's so important for people because and I think even even if you know even if you're doing well it's really nice to sort of get that little reminder that that there is that group out there of other people just just in case you know you have a problem or. Or even just to get that reminder that it's not, it's not all in your head. Well, it is, what is uh, J.K. Rowling says, uh, I think there's one point in Harry Potter, where it's just because it's happening inside your head doesn't mean it's not real. And that's what I try to really get across to people with synkinesis is they think, oh, I'm just, I'm just feeling anxious. I just have to make it go away. And I'm like, no, 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 just because it's happening in your head doesn't mean that there isn't something physiological happening here and that it's legitimate and you're not it's not a weak you're not weak you're not if it's not that if you just try a little harder if you could just be because what do they hear from their friends and family just try a little harder it's not going to go away it's something you're going to have to learn to cope with in a different way so we're going to be wrapping up in a few minutes but I, I, a couple more questions was there anything that people found beneficial as a result of facial paralysis some people said no. I asked people that directly, and a lot of people, a lot of people said no. The people who said yes, almost all of them said the benefit was that compassion piece, that it made them more aware of the range of issues that of that anyone could face, and to not to not judge. It reminded them to not judge a book by its cover, 
to not judge a person by a single interaction or a single day or and really to be more compassionate and open toward people. And for some people, they also just said it just helps them appreciate, like, like any uh, medical problem that turns out to not be fatal, um, it made them realize that there is an expiration date and maybe you should be enjoying the life that you have. A lot of people use it as an excuse to cut back, and quite a few of them said, you know what, I was working a lot or I was going full steam ahead because I thought all this stuff was important and I've come to realize that my health is important and my family is important and my life is important too. And so I think those were the main like positives people took away from it. Some of those I think are common to any kind of health crisis. Are you still conducting any interviews or anything like that for additional research? Yeah, I mean, you know what? I do every now and then um, do an interview just because I genuinely really enjoy talking <laughs> to people and I'm always sort of amazed by the insights people have. So I do occasionally still talk to a person. It's not the focus of where I am right now, but I'm still happy to talk to people because I, I just find it to be such a gratifying experience and um, it's definitely always like to hear like the broader range of experiences that people have um, and how they're coping and what they're doing to get by and things like that. So if anyone wants to reach out to you to be interviewed, especially men, men, if you're listening, men, <laughs> um, how can yeah. they, how can they um, find you or contact you or, or is there way to um to get to me is to email me and my email is f is in frank l is in larry w a c h s is in sam at cpp dot edu that's cpp like cal poly pomona we'll also put that uh if you're okay with that we can put that on the site uh so that people oh, yeah, can sure. uh do that and then as far as your research, is there anywhere someone can see that yet? Or is that not published yet? Or how is... Uh... Um, there is a webinar on the Facial Paralysis Institute website. Um, I just submitted a piece to um, the body blog um, for Body and Society. And I haven't heard back from them yet. Um, so I'm going to follow up on that in a day or two. They may be just going on summer break. Um, and... Uh, Dawn Shaw with her um, has also done a webinar with me um, that you can find on YouTube. And I'm currently in negotiation with Rutgers University Press, so hopefully there will be a book in the near future. Well, that'll be awesome. And when it comes out, we will look forward to having you on and uh, promoting it again. Um, so, Excellent. Faye, uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. I, I always love talking with you. You're, you're so knowledgeable about it, and uh, you're so influential and, and, and you make a, a really really big impact in a, a lot of people's lives so uh, thank you uh, on behalf of everybody for that 